All right, you can open up your Bibles to Romans 15. Romans 15. And here we have the, the kind of summation of Paul's purpose in writing to the Romans, all tied together in his desire to help them through the gospel. In verse uh, 13 of Romans 15, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I myself am convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and being able also to admonish one another. I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me by God, for me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have reason for boasting in these, in things pertaining to God. For I will not be bold to speak of anything except what Christ has brought about through me, leading to the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in power in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and all around, as far as Elikium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And in this way, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no declaration of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, since I have had for many years a longing to come to you uh, whenever I go to Spain. For I hope passing through to see you and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints, for uh, Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have completed this and have Put my seal on this fruit of theirs. I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest in your company. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Hey, let's pray really quick. Dear God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that we get to come to you and hear you, hear from you in your word. We thank you that we even get to be challenged through the conclusion of this letter. And we pray that um, the things that you show um, us in these in these few chapters in the end of Romans would be helpful to us, strengthening our faith, encouraging our assurance, and also focusing our, us in the application of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are 
at the very end of why you want to know the message of Romans. We've, we've, we've spent now three weeks doing this because uh, I cannot do things quickly, apparently, as it turns out. Surprise, surprise. News to all of you, I'm sure. Um, remember our brief outline of the book of Romans. Paul starts off by making an intro. He introduces himself. He kind of expresses um, love for the church in Rome. And then he also has his thesis, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all, to everyone who believes. And here, here we're reminded that, wow, this is, this is what explains Paul. This is how we understand Paul. Paul stands on a mountaintop of theology and trust and hope in God. Where does Paul get his courage? Where does Paul get his confidence to bring the gospel to places that hate him and hate Jesus? It comes from a conviction of who God is and the great salvation that is provided for everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And every situation needs the power of God in the gospel. That is his intro and his thesis in chapter 1 all the way through verse 17. And then, of course, Paul just jumps right into the problem. He says, here is the problem that the gospel answers. The problem that the gospel answers is that all mankind, regardless of how much truth and how much Bible, how much of the law they've ever received in their life, all mankind has a problem, and it is God's righteousness. God's righteousness demands that he judge people justly. And we've seen this in Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter 3, right? God's righteousness is actively judging people in their desires. Uh, that is a judgment from God to be given over to your passions and your lusts. We also see God's judgment is also future as well. And all of this, the law shows us, right? Romans three nineteen through 20 says, By the works of the law, no creature will be justified. The law does one thing. It shows us where we're at before God, and where we are at before God is fallen short. That is what the law shows us. Paul shows the problem, reveals the problem, but then Paul also shows the solution to the problem. And the solution to the problem of God's righteousness is God's righteousness. It sounds weird to us, but that's exactly how Paul uh, presents it, right? We need God's righteousness to stand before God justified. And he says this in Romans 3.21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have fallen short, or all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Your greatest problem is that you fall short of the righteousness of God. And the only solution is that you receive the righteousness of God, not by things that you do, but as a gift through faith in Christ Jesus, based on what Christ has done for you, both in taking the judgment for your sin and living the perfect life according to the law that you could not live. This is a gift. This is by faith. That is the solution, your only solution. And then, of course, Paul explains this solution, right? We are justified by faith. Yes, it's through a gift. But then Paul also wants to magnify this solution. This solution means you have 100% assurance in your salvation, right? He says in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. And then remember, we talked about this last week, Romans 5 through 8. 
are essentially drilling home this one thing. If God's power and God's purposes are behind your salvation, you have 100% assurance in God that he will bring you all the way. He will complete what he began in you. This is soaring assurance. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the conclusion of Romans 5 through 8. That is, that is, the, that is the good news of this salvation, which is justification by faith. Alone, And then, of course, he answers the biggest problem. This is chapter 9 through 11. It's a problem of how Israel, the people that have received God's promises, are not receiving Christ Jesus. And, of course, Paul answers this by saying God is sovereign, and he chooses who will be saved. And those who are saved must come through faith, not by boasting in their own works. And then, of course, Paul does say he is going to be faithful to his promise. Remember in Romans 11, right? There is a future plan for Israel. And, and all of this, Romans 9 through 11, simply humbles us, right? Justification by faith alone humbles us. A justification that's depend, dependent on God's sovereign election and choice humbles us. And even looking at our place here as Gentile believers, those people who are not Jews by birth, even seeing our place in God's whole salvation plan humbles us, doesn't it? God has a future plan for Israel. Matter of fact, there in 1136, this humbles us by itself, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things. That is, that is the summation of our salvation. It's from God, it's through God, and it's to the glory of God alone. It humbles us. And this morning, we're, we're going to turn now to the final few chapters in Romans where Paul now turns from kind of doctrinal explanation to application. What does this mean in your life? And of course, we're also going to look at not just how it applies, but why you want to learn the message of Romans in this. We're going to look at three final reasons for why you want to learn the message of Romans, and it's going to be from these final chapters of application in the letter to the Romans. And, and we'll continue the, the basic statement that we've made. Hey, if you know the message of Romans, you can do or know the following. Let's look at number six in reasons to know the message of Romans. If you know the message of Romans, you can bring every day of your life into focus. If you know the good news of the gospel, it will bring every day of your life into focus, into clarity. You will know what you are to do and how you are to live. This is always the way Paul kind of operates, right? You see this pattern in Ephesians and Colossians, a little bit in Philippians as well, right? Doctrinal clarity results in application, right? You know what you are to do if you know what you believe. And this is what Paul essentially says there in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Here we have that similar familiar therefore in Paul. Therefore, because of all of this gospel truth, all of this gospel glory, all of this gospel assurance, all of this gospel humility that we have just learned about, therefore, do these things. Live this way. We must live this way. The believer must live this way. And they live in, in focus. Their life is in focus. 
They, they, they understand what to do very clearly in their life. What's the basis of their application that Paul will follow on here from 12, 13, 14, and 15, and 16? The basis is, notice, because of the mercies of God. Romans 1 through 11 is just one big statement of God's mercies to his believers again and again and again. These are God's mercies in our life that God has not given us what we deserve, but given us a gracious gift in Christ Jesus that we do not deserve. And God has given us tremendous assurance in this salvation. This is all a mercy of God. Therefore, how do we respond to these mercies? We live a life that is all out devoted to serving and worshiping God and Christ Jesus, right? That's what he says, right? Present your bodies as a sacrifice. And this kind of connects back with Romans 6 a little bit, right? Our bodies are... are, are used to being slaves of sin, but now we are to present them to God as instruments of righteousness, and now we present our bodies, our whole lives to God in devoted service. Matter of fact, he uses the language of sacrifice there. And in the Old Testament, there were all sorts of different sacrifices, but there was one sacrifice that I think Paul is particularly uh, referring to when he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's referring to this sacrifice in the Old Testament called the whole burnt offering. It was a sacrifice that would, that would just demonstrate true, complete, utter devotion for God. It was a sacrifice that was completely consumed on the altar. Matter of fact, the altar in the Old Testament would be constantly burning with the fire of whole burnt offerings. The people of Israel, because of God's great salvation in their life, were called to be wholly devoted to Him in their heart. Matter of fact, this is what we learned about in Exodus, right? We are saved to what? Serve. That is why God saves his people, so that they may be wholly devoted in serving him. And we see this exact same pattern happen in the New Testament as well, right? We are saved to be devoted to God. Because we are saved, when we understand the truth of the gospel, it shapes and focuses our life, wholly devoted for God. Matter of fact, Jesus says this in, in Mark twelve thirty three. To love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all one's strength and with all one's mind and to love your neighbor as yourself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the heart of the Old Testament law. This is the point of the sacrifice. Those sacrifices demonstrated something of the heart that now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant era, we get to demonstrate hearts that are wholly committed to serving and obeying Christ. This is the result of the gospel. Obedience is the result of the gospel. And this brings us right back to Romans chapter 1. You remember this? When Paul's introducing himself and he, he can't help while he's introducing himself to quickly begin speaking about Jesus and the gospel, right? As he introduces the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. Right? Faith results in obedience. The gospel results in obedience. This is a very, very clear teaching in the New Testament, right? When you have been saved by God in such an amazing way, and when, when your mind is full of the beauty and the excellence and the, the mercies of God to you in Christ Jesus, obedience Obedience is the, the heartbeat of your life. Obedience is the result 
of the gospel. And a focus like this in your life will impact every single relationship that you have in your life as well. And this is where Paul goes in chapter 12, and I would even say all the way from 12 to chapter 15, right? He says, this gospel, this focus that comes to you from the gospel shapes and changes the way you live with every relationship, in every situation of your life. This gospel focuses you in your relationships. And that's the, the next reason why you want to learn the message of Romans. Not only will um, can you uh, bring every day into focus, but if you know the message of Romans, you can also serve Christ in every situation. You can serve Christ in every situation. As a matter of fact, God gives us grace to serve him in application, right? God gives us the ability, the undeserved favor to serve him in his body and in this world. Look at what it says there in chapter 12, verse 6. Each of us are um, experiencing this having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. There's different gifts that go to each member of Christ's body, and we are gifted to serve the body of Christ. Everyone has a different gifting. Matter of fact, in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, You shouldn't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but you should think of yourself in terms of the grace that you have been given in Christ Jesus to serve. The gospel enables you to serve God. And that changes every situation. It changes every situation of your life from, hey, what can I get out of this situation to how can I serve in this situation? That's what the gospel does. The gospel uh, energizes your focus in um, believing relationships with other believers. Notice chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another. Notice the gospel brings focus to your relationship with other believers. It also brings focus to your relationships with enemies as well. Notice what he says in chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Speak well of them. Pray for them. Seek as far as it depends on you to live at peace with all people as much as you can. And and this, of course, is dealing with a a person-to-person relationship. This is not a political statement here. This is Paul saying how the individual believer does not pursue enmity with anyone. They seek to live at peace with all people as far as it depends with them. Also, you as a believer, can serve God in any situation. And we've talked about this on Thursday night and and often enough, but chapter 13 is all about the believer's relationship to the government. The believer can submit themselves to any kind of government. And the, the command here to the believer is very simple, right? Submit yourself to the authorities that God has appointed in your life. And, and, and I'll read it here, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Notice, notice kind of the, the, the logic there of that statement. If, if you're a Christian, if you see your life is under the mercies of God, you don't necessarily think in submitting yourself to the government, you're just submitting to the government. You actually see this as an opportunity to submit to and serve and worship 
your true God, your true leader, your true Lord, right? You say, I believe and hold by faith that this governing authority, even in their sin and their corruption, is given to me by God for various purposes. He, he breaks down what those purposes are in verse 2, right? In verse 3, right? the government is there to restrain evil and to you know, reward good and protect protect vulnerable people, right? That's why government's here. And you can even serve government and obey government in view of this. Uh, governing authorities are ultimately a way that I can express service to God. Once again, the gospel brings your life into focus, right? In every situation, in every relationship, I can serve Jesus in some way. And, and, and next up, Paul turns to how you can even serve Jesus and live a life of focus, even in relationships that are a little sticky. In Romans 14 and 15, he talks about how to handle disagreements with other believers. Sometimes believers disagree on things. The Bible does not give us absolute rules on every area of our life. It doesn't tell us when to wake up in the morning. It doesn't tell you when to go to sleep. It gives you wisdom principles for all of these things, but it doesn't actually give us, like, sun up to sundown rules and regulations for every area of our life, like winter retreat would, you know. I know you all obey my rules perfectly from the heart, right? Um, but, but God does not do this, so we see in the body of believers, even here in this room, you will see differences in how you live for the glory of God in your life. And, and Paul addresses this. The gospel also enables you to find a way to serve and love Christ even when you are in relationships that disagree with one another. Some people refer to this to these things talked about here in Romans 14 and 15 as dealing with gray areas, areas where it's not black and white, it's not always clear. Um, let me just say this. First and foremost, you in your own mind should be 100% black and white. You, you, should, you should say, I have a reason for doing everything what I am doing. And I believe by doing it this way, I am doing it to the glory of God. But when you live that way, your black and white may be a little bit different than other people's black and white, and that will result in an area called gray. And let me define, let me define this if I can. A gray area is an issue of behavior, not doctrine, but behavior, not directly addressed in Scripture that requires wisdom and tests your love for other believers. A gray area is uh, a, an issue of behavior, that is not directly addressed in Scripture that requires wisdom and tests your love for other believers. And we see a couple principles here in chapter 14, and I think this is actually very important for you as you're growing older and you're starting to see that, hey, that, that family doesn't do things the same way we do things. Are they in sin? They must be sinning. They must be sinning. We aren't sinning, obviously. Right? And so how, how does a believer handle this when other believers have differences of opinion? Just a few just a few marks here on how to disagree, Paul gives you. First off, in, in 14.1, he says, Accept one another, accept the one who is weak, not for the purpose of passing judgment on opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. We probably have here an issue of Jews and Gentiles disagreeing. Gentiles um, Gentiles don't want to eat certain meats because of the, the food laws that they grew up in. And Gentiles are like, hey, there's no problem with this. Why should I be restrained in this way? How are we to live with one another? It says there in verse 1, right? We are to accept 
one another. Every Christian has a calling in every situation, and that is to accept another believer as exactly that, a believer in Christ. We, we don't necessarily say, hey, your behavior is uh, how I should live, but I accept you as a true believer who is seeking to honor Christ in all that you do. I'm not looking down on you, saying, hey, I'm freer than you. I'm not judging you, saying, hey, I must be holier than you. You're saying, you are a believer for whom Christ has died. That should shape the way you even think about this. This is someone for whom Christ has died. But there's another principle here that Paul gives us in verse 4. You should realize, recognize in all of these situations that every believer, yourself included, will answer to God for how you live in this life. Notice what he says there in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You, you say in your heart, Christ has died for this person, and Christ has also died for their obedience, and Christ will give them an answer for how they have lived, whether to his glory or not. Each Christian is called to be, once again, fully convinced in their own mind. That's what God wants for you, to be fully convinced, to say, I am living in black and white terms because of my convictions and the conscience that I have before God. But that shouldn't be a conviction that you level on others. You should still hold grace towards one another and say, you also stand before God and he will be your judge as well. And there's something else really important that I want you to see as well. Look at verse 13. Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this, not to put a stumbling block or offense before a brother. There's something else you should understand in these issues, right? There is something more important than any freedom you have. And that is brotherly love. That is what is going to build up another rather than tear them down. That is what your concern should be. That's what, that should be the, the occupation of your mind and saying, hey, when I am with other believers, I want to seek brotherly love and what builds up. There's something more important than my freedom. And actually, by the way, this comes right to where we are at as a youth group. We intentionally, as a youth group, say there are some things that we do not do. Some of you may have freedoms to do these things, but to be in this group of believers together, we are going to prefer one another and seek brotherly love and seek for what builds up. So there's some things we don't do together, but that's simply because we want to be oriented around this idea of loving other people more than ourselves. That is more important than freedom. And then notice also in verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Notice here another principle for helping you understand this situation. It is possible, now this is going to be complicated, but listen very closely. It is possible to sin without sinning. Right? You can do something that is not sin. But if your brother or sister in Christ sees you do something that is not sin, and they have this conviction that it is sin, and they try to follow you in that, thinking it is sin, they are sinning without sinning. Because what God looks at, once again, is the heart of the matter, right? That is what he's saying there in verse 23. He's saying it is better to pursue what builds up, what loves others. If, I, if, if my freedoms are going to cause a believer to follow me in rebellion of heart, I will forget those freedoms. 
I would rather, I would rather never eat again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, than cause one of my brethren to sin. And then notice also 15.1. Here's another principle. And now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. You could say it this way. The more freedoms you have, the more opportunities you also have to show love and prefer other people, right? That, that is what God has given you. If you have maybe uh, less qualms of conscience in certain areas, you simply have more ways to forego those freedoms to serve other people. Remember, once again, the gospel brings us all into clarity. Verse 3 of chapter 15, Even Christ did not please himself, but as it, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is how the Christian lives. I'm not here to please myself. I'm here to seek what builds up and what encourages other believers as well. And then finally, God's glory ultimately comes through unity of this kind. God's glory comes when, when two believers, maybe that have two different opinions on a certain issue, come together under the unity of truth and say, we are going to forego our own opinions to be united under the truth. Notice what Paul says there in 5 and 6. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this is not a doctrinal uh, thing that these people are putting aside differences of opinion on. These are smaller, lesser, secondary issues that they are saying, I'm going to forego freedom in order to worship and serve together with these other believers. It is good. It is good to assume in your heart to say, I do not know the motivations of their heart, but if they are a Christian, I'm going to assume that what they are doing is because they are convinced that it brings glory to God. Matter of fact, notice what he says in 14.6. He who regards the day regards it for the Lord, and he who eats, eats for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Notice, one believer is not eating. And it is an act of worship to God. And another believer is eating. And it is an act of worship to God. That's how we should strive to live and think about one another. Um, just, oh yeah, I'll skip that part. Uh, let's go to our final reason to know the book of Romans. If you wanted to know how to personally make decisions, come to me afterwards. I got a whole sheet of paper on how to make decisions uh, based on quote-unquote gray areas. i got a lot of good questions for you. Uh, but we're going to jump on right to the next one. Love is the theme that focuses our lives because of the mercies of God. And love uh, puts self aside for a greater purpose, right? Um, unity in such areas is the fruit of doctrinal clarity, right? When you can put aside secondary issues to love other people, it's, it's, it's a sign that you have the truth, and the truth is more important than so on, uh, so, so-called freedoms. And finally, if you know the message of Romans, you can finally pursue the purpose of unity. If you know the message of Romans, you can pursue the purpose of unity. A lot of people are excited about unity in our world today, but they want you to pursue unity by removing truth, right? Let's just stop disagreeing about truth and, and start coming together. And that is not what the Bible says at all. Remember, Paul spent 11 chapters hammering down gospel truth so that you can be unified under it. 
and you can put aside secondary matters of personal preference in preference of gospel unity. And we are to pursue the purpose of unity. Paul, notice Paul doesn't resolve these gray areas. And this is very interesting to me, right? Chapter 14, chapter 15, why doesn't Paul, by the power of the Spirit, say, hey, Jews, stop freaking out about it. You can eat whatever you want. Hey, Gentiles, you guys are free to eat whatever you want. Why doesn't Paul clarify this for the Jews? Why doesn't he command the Jews to stop judging others? Well, probably because he's trying to establish how you deal with all situations under which Christians disagree. You put aside secondary freedoms for primary unity of purpose and ministry. Remember, once again, Paul writes Romans for a purpose, right? He, he writes to bring gospel unity between Jew and Gentile believers in Rome under gospel truth in support of his own gospel ministry, right? He writes to bring them together so that they can see what really matters that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they can put aside and, and kind of lay aside freedoms that they may be insisting upon, also that they can be coming together in unity of truth to support gospel ministry to the ends of the earth, right? That's what, that's what God wants in the church. He wants us to say, because we are so sure of the truth, we are willing to put aside certain freedoms we have in order not to put a stumbling block in other believers' life for a time, but we're so certain of the truth that we want to come together in unity to pursue ministry, further ministry. This is what Paul writes. And I'd say this is what true maturity is. True maturity, spiritual maturity, is a willingness to set aside your interests, uh, your own personal interests, for the furtherance of Christ and the gospel message, right? That's what true maturity is. This doesn't matter. My freedoms don't matter. Christ and the gospel and the spreading of the gospel, that is what matters. Paul writes, for their unity, joy, peace. Notice what he says there in verse 13 of chapter 15. I love this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. That is unity together. And notice, how are they filled with joy and peace? Is it by setting aside truth? No, it is in believing. You are full with joy and unity when you come together under the truth of the gospel. Paul writes for their unity through the truth, but he also writes to mobilize them in this unity. Remember what he says, right? I'm writing to you so that when I come you may support me further as I go on to Spain, to, to a place that has never heard the gospel message. That is why Paul writes. That's why Paul is so eager to share the gospel with them, because of the power of the gospel. The gospel changes the world, and it also changes Christians in how we handle differences with other believers. It, it, it focuses us. It causes us to see the things that really, really, truly matter. That's the message of Romans. Um, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning that we get to gather together. Thank you for the truth of your word that brings clarity as to our greatest priority so that we can set aside and pursue love together as a body of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.